Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. It's so good to see you today. I'm going to start the message in just a moment, but a couple things. First off, we have a huge Thanksgiving service next weekend, so I promise you it's going to be an extraordinary time. We're just going to focus on being thankful, and specifically, we're going to be thankful about the things that God has brought us through, the difficult times. So very, very special service. I promise you it's going to be a great time of worship, and I really believe the message will be meaningful to everyone who's been through difficult times, and God has brought you through. And then, of course, we start our Christmas series two weeks from this weekend. It's the biggest thing I've ever been part of. It's called Put Yourself in the Picture, and you'll want to invite everybody that you can to be part of these services. Well, let's get into today's talk. I want to start with a weird question. Before I give you that question, you know I'm talking about generosity for these two weeks, last week and this week. And um, as I've said before, you guys are already extremely generous. So it's kind of like a refresher for y'all. You know, a lot of churches, it's like they have to be taught to to be generous, but it's in your heart. So I know you know these things already. But let me just begin with this really weird question. And maybe we'll we'll work on this for a little while. Do you ever fantasize about being generous? Let me start one more time. Just ask you the question. Do you ever fantasize about being generous. I think if you're normal, you do. You know, narcissists never fantasize about being generous, but you're not narcissists, you're new springers. So, you know, the narcissists fantasize about what they get, but I really do believe it's in our hearts as, as normal, healthy people to fantasize about doing good. And a lot of times it'll start with something like this. If I had a million dollars, I would, and you think about the generosity that you would do if you had a million dollars. Why do we fantasize about being generous? I think of three reasons real quickly. Number one, generosity is beautiful, isn't it? You know, that's why this time of year, Thanksgiving and Christmas, even our jaded media will put in stories about people doing good things for other people. And why do we do that? Why, Why do they do that? Why do we enjoy those stories? Well, we do because generosity is a beautiful thing. And so we watch these stories of people doing generous things and our hearts are warmed by it because generosity is beautiful. Secondly, I think we fantasize about being generous because generosity gives us a good feeling. I had the opportunity to be generous to some total strangers this week. I never saw them before. I'll never see them again, I don't think. But I had an opportunity to meet a need. And as I drove away, I felt so good about that. You know, doesn't it make us feel good when we're generous? Uh, We always feel cruddy when we're stingy, don't we? You know, when we have an opportunity to do good and we don't do good, it makes us feel bad. But when we're generous, it's a good feeling. I remember uh, reading something in the media some time ago about a, a guy who was just kind of, he worked in an office, but he wasn't a rich guy. But he had a brand new Porsche because his older brother, who was very wealthy, had given it to him. So here he is. His office is like in one of those streets that has residences and business. He had parked his new Porsche out in front of his business. But, of course, there were houses around there given the type of neighborhood it was. So when this guy came out of his office, there was a little boy looking in the window of his Porsche. 
And when he came up to the Porsche, the, the kid said, hey, is that your Porsche? And the guy said, yeah, it's my Porsche. And the kid said, you must be really rich to be able to afford a Porsche like that. And he said, no, I'm not really rich. He said, it's a gift. My brother gave it to me. And the kid said, you mean your brother gave it to you for nothing? He's like, yeah. Was it your birthday? No, no, no. He, he just gave me this. And the kid said, wow, that's amazing. And he started off a sentence this way. I wish I... And the guy said he knew what the kid was going to say. I wish I, I had a brother like that. But the kid fooled him. The kid said, I wish I could be a brother like that. I think we all feel that, don't we? I mean, there's something about being generous that gives us a wonderful feeling. Well, there's another reason why we fantasize about being generous, especially those of us who believe in God. And that is we're aware that good things come to people who are generous Oh, oh, gosh, I don't have time for this, but I'm going to get off on a tangent here for just a second. When Christians talk about karma, I'm like, you know what? If you're a Christ follower, do you even know what you're talking about? Karma is an unguided process. The Bible tells us why that process works, and it's not karma. It's called sowing and reaping. The Bible says there's an almighty God who's behind this who watches what we do, and we will harvest what we plant. And so if we harvest generosity, we'll reap generosity. Look at this. Psalm 112, verse 5. Good will come to him, or it's a generic term, could be her. Good will come to the person who is generous. It's like an algebraic equation. On one end, you have good. On the other hand, you have generous, generosity. So when we are generous, good comes to us. And then there's the second line. Surely that person will, ne uh, surely that person will never be shaken. Hmm, that's interesting because we live in shaky times, don't we? I mean, the economy's shaky. Geopolitics is shaky. Politics in the United States is shaky. There's just a whole, a whole lot of stuff that's shaky. And yet the Bible says for a generous person, that person, regardless of what's going on around, will not be shaken. Interesting. In the book of Psalms, the Bible says this person will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. What does that mean? It means a tree planted beside water is never dependent on rainfall because there's a source of water there. In other words, a tree planted by water isn't dependent upon the conditions because there's a continuous supply. And so for all of us who live in these shaky times, isn't it good to know the good comes to the person who is generous and that person, that man, that woman will never be shaken. So I ask you the question, do you ever fantasize about being generous? But you knew where I was going with this because I need to say there's a breakdown, isn't there? Because for many of us who fantasize about being generous, we never quite get there. It's like if I had money that I don't have, I would do X. So if we have a breakdown, what stops us from being generous? I mean, it's not that we're not generous. It's in our hearts. What stops us? So thankful that the prophet Isaiah gives us, I started to say the answer, but he really gives us the two answers for why we fail to be generous when we feel like being generous. Isaiah 32 verse 8 says, generous people, and these are not fantasizers. These are people that really are generous. Generous people plan. Ooh, that's a big word. Generous people plan to do what is generous. That's our first answer. So if we feel generous, but we're not generous, we're missing a plan. Now, that's not the whole 
answer to the question. I said, there are two reasons. Look what Isaiah said. They plan to do what is generous and they stand firm in their generosity. So they not only have a plan for generosity, they execute that plan and they stand firm. Even when things don't necessarily seem to be going well, they have follow through. Always remember this, New Spring, a dream without a workable plan is an empty fantasy. One more time, a dream without a workable plan is an empty fantasy. One of the worst things we ever tell our kids is follow your dream. That's a horrible piece of advice. I think I did a talk back a few years ago in a series called You Times Two, in which I said, typically Americans have the idea of follow your dream, develop a plan. That's exactly backward. You need to develop your dream. It needs to be, it needs to be a dream that is realistic. You need to develop your dream and then follow your plan. So again, one more time, one of the worst pieces of advice we ever give our kids is follow your dream by itself. You need a plan. And a dream without a plan is an empty fantasy. I've talked to so many people through the years. It's like, well, what do you want to do with your life? Well, I just lost my job at the mall. I think I want to be a doctor. Well, do you have a plan for being a doctor? You know, I, you know, I'm like, okay, you know, I just got laid off uh, and I haven't been to college yet, but you know what I think I'm going to do? I think I'm going to be a lawyer. Well, okay, that's, it's a great thing to be an attorney. Do you have a plan for being an attorney? I remember telling this story in New Times 2. When I was in Houston, I was pretty young myself, I was 22, but I remember I was, I was a pastoring a church there in the inner city and we had a young man named Billy who was, uh, he was not quite 20 yet. And, I, and again, I told this story in you times two, and uh, stay with me for a second because it'll, it'll matter in just a moment. I haven't seen him in 45 years. But anyway, I remember one day, I can remember exactly where I was in the worship center of this church. I had just finished speaking. I came down and I was just greeting Billy again. He was married already. He had a, a beautiful wife, but he was very young. I said, I don't think he was 20 yet. So I, I came down from the stage and we're talking about his career with the Houston Police Department. And he said, you know, he said, I never had the money to go to college. And he said, I just, from the time I graduated high school, I was into the police academy. And he said, it's a good job and I love what I do. But he said, here's my plan. He said, the Houston, the Houston Police Department will pay my way through college. And he said, it's going to take me 10 years to get my undergraduate degree. He said, I'll have to go to night school. But he said, they will pay my way through college. He said, if I graduate from college and I commit to staying in the prosecutor's department, they will pay my way through law school. And then he said, I'll go into the prosecutor's department. He said, maybe someday I'll have my own law firm. I've told that story for years. I've told it to corporations as well as telling it to you as a church and to other churches because I was so impressed with the fact that Billy had a plan that supported his dream. As I say, I haven't seen him in 45 years. Why am I telling you this story? Because last week I was watching Dateline and it was a case in Houston where one doctor had tried to poison another doctor and they had three lawyers sitting on the, on the seat and said, the lawyer who owns the law firm, I looked, it's Billy. It's Billy. I, I emailed him. I haven't contacted him in 45 years. I said, you did it. You did it. He had a dream, but it made sense because he had a workable plan. Well, here's the thing. If you and I want to be generous, but we're not being generous, Isaiah has already told us what our problem is. We don't have a plan, and if we do have a plan, we don't stand firm in it. Here's my message for you today. You don't have to develop the plan. God has already developed it. 
And we have, we have an opportunity to get in on God's plan. Now, before I go any further in this message, let me just say I'm talking to New Springers. I know that many of you watch us online from around the country. Many of you watch us on television. You're a member of another church. I know I run into you seven days a week. And I love running into you, and I, you're part of another church. So here's the thing. If you're part of another church family, you need to take this and utilize it where you worship. I'm talking to New Springers today about God's plan. Now, when we start un- opening the scripture, we discover that like any good plan, God gives us the what, the where, the when, the how, and the why. Real, real quickly, I want to talk to you about all those things. What is God's plan? Malachi 3 verse 10 a lot of places in the Bible, we'll just pick Malachi 3.10. It says, bring the whole tithe. Well, there's a word, tithe, into the storehouse. Well, the tithe in biblical terms was when people would bring a tenth of their income and bring it to the place where they worship. So that's God's plan. Now, there are those who sometimes say that this was only under the law, that this was something that was part of the Mosaic law. The law, of course, did not come to Moses, but the idea of the tithe existed long before the law. It existed centuries before the law. In fact, it was part of God following from the very beginning of time. If you went back almost uh, 800 years before the law, you have Abraham. And listen to what the Bible says about Abraham in chapter 7, verse 2 of Hebrews. Abraham took a tenth And he gave it to Melchizedek, who was a priest of God, but it was before the Aaronic priesthood that came during the times of Moses. So that's God's plan. To a tenth of my income, I bring it to to God. The where, where do I bring it? Well, now we move forward a little bit, still not up to the law, still not up to the Mosaic law. We, We look at Jacob. Jacob said, this memorial pillar I've set up will become a place for worshiping God, and I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. So now we know the plan, a tenth, then there's a place. Well, when do we bring that tithe? That's the next thing, when. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, on the first day of the week, Sunday worship. And I told the group last night, the Jewish day began the night before, so even those who come on Saturday night, they're cool with this. And by the way, we do have services on Saturday night. If it gets a little crowded here at 9.30, we have a 4 o'clock service. It's not quite as crowded. And then the how. How do we bring the tithe? Well, the Bible says, save it to the extent that God has blessed you. That's the plan. Summed up, I should have a place of worship, a storehouse where the seed, the word of God is presented. Jesus said the seed is the word. I should bring 10% or as God has prospered me. And the gift is to be presented when I worship. Well, (laughs) it's this last thing, this last part of God's plan that tends to get us. And that's the why. Because here's the thing. If If you already tithe like many of us have and done for years, you don't need this. But if you've never done it before, it's kind of like, why would I do that? I mean, if I take 10% of my income and give it to God, that means I'm going to have to live on 90%. And 90% doesn't sound as good as 100%. So why would I do that? That's a fair question. And you could walk away today and say, it's not for me, and I totally understand. I'm never going to know what you do unless you want me to know. But I want to give you seven quick reasons why Mary Alice and I believe in tithing. 
It's been part of my life. You'll hear at the end of the service if I have time. It's been part of my life ever since I was a kid. And we've, we've gone through seasons where we didn't have enough to pay our bills. And we've been through seasons when we've had blessing. But tithing has been part of our lives. Why would I do that? Well, first of all, let me just let you know, I'm going to go through these seven real fast. If I'm sitting in a church and the pastor just said he had seven points, I'm getting nervous. So <laughs> let, let, let me just go real fast through these. Here's the first one. This may sound small, but it's meaningful to me. It identifies me among God worshipers through the ages. When we start studying what God's, God worshipers have done, this is what they've done. I mean, we've already seen Abraham. We've looked at Jacob. How about the widow with two coins that Jesus said, I mean, she gave two days wages, and Jesus said she gave more than everybody else. I'm not as great as she is, but I'm with her. I'm, I'm, I'm on her bus. I'm with her. I'm, I'm identified among God worshipers. Probably one of the groups of people that really stand out to me is who Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians. They were believers in Macedonia. And Paul is writing the Corinthian church. Corinth was a lot like America. They were wealthy, but they were slow to give. And so Paul is telling these sort of fat cat Christians in Corinth what the believers in Macedonia have done. Here's what he said. Fierce troubles came down on the people of those churches, pushing them to the very limit. The trial exposed their true colors. Hmm. They were incredibly happy, though desperately poor. The pressure triggered something totally unexpected, an outpouring of pure and generous gifts. Paul said, I was there, and I saw it for myself. I'm not great, but I can be considered with these people. I can hang with them. I can ride on their bus. I am identifying with Christ followers through the years. Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Macedonian believers, the widow with two, with two coins. Reason number two, it's a weekly heart checkup. You know, the Bible says something about our hearts. It's not talking about the pump in our chest. It's talking about our inner person. The Bible says the heart is desperately wicked and very deceitful. That means my heart. My inner person can deceive me if I'm not careful. But when I bring the tithe, it's like a weekly heart checkup. Listen to what Jesus said. In Matthew 6, verse 21, he said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Well, if we think that through, we're expecting Jesus to say just the opposite. We're expecting Jesus to say where your heart is, there will your treasure be. In other words, what you care about is where you will put your money but Jesus flips that and he says, where you put your money is where your heart will be. You know, I, I, a lot of years I struggle with that. I'm like, I'm really trying to understand that. But you know, the older I get, the more I understand. After, when we look, we're look at our expenses, after our giving to the Lord's work, our next financial outgo is our mortgage. Now, I don't live in a really fancy home, but I live in a nice house. And I put money into that, not only to pay for it, but to take care of it. So my treasure has gone into my house. I'm very careful about what happens to my house. I always know where the dog is. And if someone did something to, to do damage to my house, that would be a problem for me because so much of my treasure has gone there. And now my heart is there. And here's the thing. If you put your treasure in God's work, your heart will be in God's work. And we need that heart checkup. 
because you and I live in an age where we are being groomed to be selfish. I remember several years ago, I saw something on television. I try to think about it from time to time. I remember Morales and I were just really exhausted, and we decided one afternoon we were just going to rest. And Morales was going to take a nap. I don't sleep in the daytime, but I thought, well, for, I'm going to take a rare afternoon, go to the basement, and watch television. Well, there's never, there's never anything on television, right? We got, what, 500 channels and nothing on? <laughs> anyway, I was just flipping channels, and I came across this show in those bands of channels that very few people watch. Hey, Miriam likes to watch HGTV, and there would be people like selling houses and flipping houses back in the day. I'm, you know, I watch a lot of ESPN, so I have to do penance for that. So I watch HGTV with Miriam sometimes. I've seen people flip houses. This was a program called Selling Jets. I don't know if anybody ever see that. I mean, it's like it's like you know, it's a, it's, a, it, it's like they're selling private jets to customers. It's a reality show, which Lord knows if there was ever an oxymoron, that's it. But anyway, they're selling jets. This particular episode that I was watching, a very, very wealthy guy who had airplanes of his own was buying, hold on, a jet plane for his teenage daughter who was in college. I think she was like 19 years old or so. It's been a few years since I've seen this, but he was buying a jet plane for her. She proudly announced to her dad that she could do her own shopping. So he let her shop. And she, the decision came down to two private jet aircraft. One was a Learjet that, if I remember right, was about $1.8, $1.9 million. It had, it had some age on it, but it was, a, it was a nice jet. The other was a Citation. Cessna Citation is going to cost around $7 million. That Citation... It was a newer jet, and it had newer equipment on it, especially in regard to electronics. And so she, her dad had said to her, there's no way I can afford that $6 million citation. That Learjet is good enough for you. And she got upset with her dad because he would not buy her the $6 million jet because the Learjet did not have Wi-Fi. And so she said to her dad, you're being unfair to me. And here's what she said, Okay. She said, how am I going to be able to do my homework if I have a jet that doesn't have Wi-Fi? Let me find out who we have here today. <laughs> how many of you managed to make it through college without a private jet? Let me go a step further. How many of you managed to make it through college without a private jet that had Wi-Fi? <laughs> Let me find out where my really old people are. How many of you managed to make it through college without Wi-Fi? <laughs> I jumped out of my chair and I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> this girl is crazy for real. <laughs> and that fast the Holy Spirit said, how do you think you look to people in sub-Saharan Africa who don't have enough food to eat today when you have to have certain surfaces in your house and certain floors and certain options on your automobile? Oh. That's why I think about this story from time to time. 
We need a weekly heart checkup because our hearts are desperately wicked, the Bible says, and very deceitful. Number three, and this is for new springers. I bring the tithe. Why do I do it? Because I love my church and I believe in its vision. We decided several years ago not to be an ordinary church. And I don't mean by that that we're anything special. We're not. We're very ordinary people. But we decided not to be an ordinary church. Because ordinary churches tend to play to the people that, that financially take care of the church. I mean, they sort of play to that. Now, you guys are generous way more than the average church, but we decided years ago that we were going to be a church that was about reaching people that were spiritually unresolved. And we said, we're going to be a church that's about people who aren't here yet. And because of that, we took a financial risk because as God began to open our doors and so many began to come in and explore, they came in, but of course they didn't understand biblical giving yet. They were just trying to connect with God. And we were cool with that. And then we said, we're going to be a church that's about kids. This week I was taking a pastor from another church through our campus. And, you know, I thought one more time, all you have to do to know that New Spring is about kids is just walk through our campus. Because everywhere you look, you'll know that most of the buildings on this campus are for kids. And the kind of churches that we have is expensive. I mean, when you think about kids, kids are the, kids are the, the reason why most churches don't focus. This is the nasty little secret that most churches won't tell you. The nasty little secret about kids is they're the audience that cost the most and bring the least. You know, we just built a, a, a nursery complex because we have 500 babies one Easter and we thought, what happens if we have 500 babies again? Well, the next year we had 700 babies. Well, I think you know babies don't tithe. We said we're cool with that. We, we don't want to be the ordinary church. We're not we, don't even, we don't even think in terms of money that much. We think, about term we think in terms of ministry, and we just trust God to supply the money. Well, that's kind of backward in our world today. The kind of church that we are is expensive, but we've never been a rich church. And, you know, whenever you look at the theming all around us, whether it's a jet plane hanging over my head for a series or all the kids' world theming, we knew we could never go into the open market and buy those things. We learned to make them. We learned to take materials. And by the way, time out. The, the guy who has led this ministry for so many years, Dale Poor, our resident genius, is in the hospital right now and uh, really needs, really needs a, a miracle right now. So if you don't mind praying for Dale and just praying that God will raise him up. But we said, okay, we're never going to be rich, but if we, don't, we can't buy it, we'll make it. We'll figure out how to make it. And God came and made New Spring what it is. And I love this church, and I love its vision, and I love it because lives change because of this church. Every, every day, every day, we're going to hear stories from people whose lives change. Oh, this one just came in this week. Mary Alice read it to me at breakfast on Tuesday morning. A guy who reached out to us, didn't, doesn't live in Wichita, but reached out to us for a decision box with the Bible, the book I wrote, and that kind of thing. We do that every week. And he said this, I watched your television worship service for eight years in prison. Pastor Mark changed my life, helping me find Jesus. Thank him for me. Well, I'm grateful for the kindness to me, but I didn't change his life. Jesus changed his life. And television, I didn't do that. You did that. Look, look, look at the men volunteering on the cameras today. 
You were the ones that said, we believe in the vision of this church enough, we're going to find a way to put this broadcast on television. You know what? On television, we never ask for money because this is about people's lives being changed. You are the ones who supply that. And I get, I get contact from prisons in our region where it's like, you know, on, when the broadcast is on, most of the prisoners are watching New Spring Church. A few weeks ago, forgive me, there's, I could talk forever on this, and I would love to, about the vision of this church. A few weeks ago, I shared with you how we had an opportunity to get Muslim Bibles, Bibles in Muslim countries. And I remember this organization that smuggles Bibles at the risk of, we've, we've actually lost a couple of couriers who've been, who've been killed because they were getting Bibles in. This organization asked us for, I think it was like fifty dollars or $60,000 for printing of Bibles. And they just said, can you do part of this? And I came to you and I said, I don't want to do part of it. I want to do all of it. I want, I want us to have all the blessing. And you know what? In one weekend, you raised everything they were asking for plus. I got a 12-page summary of what's going on. I can't, a lot of things I can't share about that. I just read some of it, read it before I came out here. You, know, you, you wouldn't believe what's happening through your gift. I mean, there are Syrian refugees that are depressed. You know who put a Bible in their hands? New Spring Church. I, I read the story of soldiers, and I cannot mention the name of the country, but soldiers that were asking smugglers, can we have one of the Bibles? There's a revival. 600, these are people in a Muslim country, 600 people have gone public with their faith by baptism. It's not like baptism here at New Spring where we invite our friends. We're talking about baptism when you could lose your life for going public with your faith. 600 new believers in a Muslim country. You know who put a Bible in their hands? New Spring Church. In fact, the smuggler, probably more than I should say, the smuggler who got the Bibles in there is a former imam. You did that. And I could go on and on and on and on about this church. New Spring is here in Wichita. It's around the country. It's around the world. I believe in this church and I believe in its vision. And that's one reason why I love to bring the tithe. Number four, consistent giving allows me to give more. One of the main reasons why this plan is so effective at taking generosity from a fantasy to a reality is if we... If we give weekly, we can give more than we can give at the end of the year. The only time I really take a look at what we give in a lump sum is like you do when I'm filling out my income tax. And I look at that amount, which is the largest outgo in my family is New Spring Church. And I look at that and I think, there's no way in the world I could write a check for that. But I can bring it a week at a time. Number five, consistent giving means I understand God's work goes on daily. You know, there are people that if they're moved by something, and, and this is a good thing, they will give, but there's not consistent giving. I remember years ago, we had a deadbeat dad in our church. He had a nice job, but he didn't take care of his wife and his kids, except at Christmas. And when Christmas rolled around, he would buy these enormous gifts, but he never took care of the light bill. He never took care of the heating bill. He never took care of the rent. It was like he didn't understand that there were daily expenses. In fact, his giving was all about making him feel good. But the thing about consistent giving is it means I understand that God's work goes on every, every day. The statistics tell us that around 20% of Christian families give consistently, and they fund 80% of God's work. While we're throwing out statistics, someone could say, well, you know, it's because things are tough today. 
Well, today, and this is all charitable giving in the United States, today, charitable giving is at 2.5%. In the Great Depression, you ready for this? It was 3.3%. Let's dream for a moment. What would happen if all Christ followers tithed? I know that's a dream. But if all Christ followers tithe, statistics tell us that we would raise hundreds of billions of dollars. And in five years, don't think with me for a moment, dream with me. If all believers tithe, we could fund, first of all, all necessary church projects. Number two, we could fund global missions. Number three, we could end world hunger. Number four, we could end world illiteracy. And number five, we could, we could provide clean water and sanitation for the entire world. If Christians would just execute the plan that God gave us. Number six, I, I tithe because I want to be blessed. <laughs> there are some really hyper spiritual people that say, I don't think you should tithe because you want to receive anything. You should just tithe out of sacrifice. Well, that's really smart and it sounds real spiritual. The only problem is about 180 degrees different from God's word. Here's what Jesus said. By the way, every time we see something about giving, we're told instantly what we will receive. In Luke 6, verse 38, Jesus said, if you give, you will get. Your gift will return to you in full and overflowing measure, pressed down and shaken together to make room for more. See, the thing about it is, here's our problem. This is just such, such an American thing. When it comes to motivations, we think about sacrifice way up here, and we think about giving to receive way down here is kind of a low motive. God is way more concerned with your faith than he is with your sacrifice. It's just the opposite. How do we know that? It's real simple. God's word, Malachi 3.10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. This is the only time God ever says, test me. He understands that the first time you tithe is a challenge. And God said, test me, try me. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room to receive it. God says, test me. Well, if, if I'm sitting out there and I've never tithed before, I'm like, well, what happens to the people who tithe? How do we know that they don't go into poverty? Well, statistics help us with that because here's what we know from statistics about people who tithe. 33% are debt-free, in contradistinction to 10% of the general population. One more time, 33% are debt-free. 80% have no outstanding credit card balances. 74% owe nothing on their cars. 48% own their homes. And you know, you say, well, the 10th is a lot. 77% of people who tithe give between 11 and 20%, not just the 10th. What do they know? What do they know? <laughs> People who tithe understand that God is not a charity case looking for donors. He's an entrepreneur looking for partners. And somebody could say, well, Mark, my finances are in such bad shape, I can't even begin to think about giving a tenth. Okay, let me give you a, an idea for a plan. And, and again, I will not know what you do. So this, this is between you and God. If you look at your budget and you say, Mark, there just is not 10% that I can give. Okay, pick a percent that you can give as a plan that you'll follow through on. 1%, 3%, 5%, 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%, 
But I'm not talking about negotiating with God. I'm just saying your faith inside your headlights. Make God this commitment. God, by faith, I will bring 1%, 3%, whatever God leads you to do. But as soon as possible, as soon as it's even physically possible, I will move that up to a tithe. And I have watched people through the years as God has been faithful in that area. Let me give you the seventh reason, and we'll be pretty close to being through. You can't outgive God. I didn't tell this story last night. Jonathan was in my office beforehand. He said, Dad, tell the story of the first time that your tithe was really a challenge. So I'm going to do what Jonathan told me to do. He's very smart. <laughs> Dr. Jonathan Hooper. When I was a kid growing up, tithing was never a problem because I had just got an allowance. So, and this, this is really old for those of you First of all, I had to work for my allowance. I was not granted my allowance. I had chores that I had to do, and that's how I got my allowance. But, I mean, good night, $1.50. I think that's what my allowance was when I was a kid growing up. Hey, that's not hard, 15 cents. That's not a challenge. First time in my life it was ever a challenge, I was 17 years old. I graduated from high school early. I was already leading worship in my church, and I was asked to come lead worship for a church in West Texas. Out in oil country. That sounds strange. 17 years old? But there was a you know, well-known, nationally known speaker who was going to do the messages. My job was to go out and lead the church in music. And um, I think that's the first time I ever preached on the radio. And actually the church, was, they wanted to hire me as associate pastor. 17, what a strange thing. But I remember at the end of that revival they gave me a check for $130, which was the most money I'd ever seen in my life. And it doesn't sound like very much, but if you're 17 years old in spring of 1974, that's a lot of money. Now, in those days, I had needs like any 17-year-old kid. I looked at that $130 check and I thought, there are three things I need, and this check might take care of one of them. My car had been in an accident. I had a 1966 Ford Galaxy, and it had been in an accident. And the only way we could fix it was to put a front end from another Ford. The only problem is my car was white, and the car we took it from was red. So I had the only car like that in Fort Worth, Texas. It had a red front, and it had a white. The rest of the car was white. And I thought, you know, there's cheap cheap painters. And I thought for $130, I might get a cheap paint job and make my car either all red or all white. But I thought, you know, I got another problem too, because my four tires that were on my car were all bald. And I thought, well, I might be able to replace a couple of tires with cheap tires, you know, for $130. And then I had a real need. I needed a new stereo for my room. <laughs> now, all of you baby boomers know just how important that is. You know, because if you wanted to listen to ZZ Top or if you, you know, if you want to listen to uh, Creedence Clearwater or somebody like that, you had to have a really, really good stereo. So I'm looking at that check and I'm thinking to myself, which one of those three do I do? So anyway, the revival's over. I'm back at my church. I'm leading worship in my church. And my dad is preaching and it's like it was time for the offering and it was like the Holy Spirit said, what about me? What about the tithe? And I said, oh, Lord, I can't do that because, you know, the tithe was just enough to keep me from doing one of those things. But, you know, God, 
God doesn't strike you with lightning. He just leans on you, right? <laughs> and I never will forget when I put the tithe into the offering plate that day and I looked at it as it went away. <laughs> and I was singing, God be with you till we meet again. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not going to be able to do any of those things. <laughs> we had this guy in our church. His name was Roy Cox. Roy was probably about 60 years old, which when I was 17, I thought that was as old as you possibly got. <laughs> now it's looking young. <laughs> but Roy and his wife didn't have any kids. And, and again, if your worship leader is 17 years old, and, and God had blessed me. And so a lot of the older people just really kind of doted on me. I was kind of like, you know, they, they just, it was just kind of this cool relationship. So when the service was over, I'd see Roy coming toward me, and I would like, oh, Lord, can I get out of here? Because... I am, I, am, I am wound real tight. And I won't, if, if someone's telling me a story, get to the bottom line. And Roy never got to the bottom line of anything in his life. And he, he would come up and talk to me, and he called me little brother. And he would rock back and forth. And when Roy told a story, it wasn't sentence by sentences, phrase by phrase. And he always wanted to tell me a long story. So I remember, you know, it was in that service and Roy Cox, it was after I'd given my title. Roy was coming and I couldn't get away. And Roy came up to me and he said, little brother. He said, um, you know, your car is two colors. <laughs> I said, I know that, Roy. He said, I have a friend who has a paint shop. He said, uh, could I have your keys? He said, I'd, I'd like to take it with me. I, I don't know what he's going to do. He just asked for my keys. So the service is over, and I went to my dad, and I said, Dad, can I ride home with you? Dad's like, what's wrong with your car? I said, well, Roy Cox came to me, and he asked me for my keys, and you told me to honor my elders, and so <laughs> I need to ride home. Dad's like, well, what does he want your car for? I don't know. He just mentioned something about paint. Man, the next Sunday I came to church and my, Roy was there with my car and it's all white. Now I'm like, wow, that's interesting. You know, painting was on my, on my thing and I still have my, I still have my, you know, $115. Now I'm thinking about, okay, tires, stereo, tires and stereo. At the end of the service, Roy Cox came up to me again, rocking back and forth. He said, little brother, can I, and I had my keys out already. <laughs> he said, I noticed when I was driving your car that you had some bald tires. He said, can I have your keys? When he brought it back, it had four new tires on it. And I'm like, oh boy, stereo. <laughs> So I'm like looking, you know, I'm like $115 to buy, buy an okay stereo. I get a phone call from one of my dad's friends. He said the Akai company, which was high-end electronics in those days. He said the Akai company has got a shipment of high-end stereos. And I remember the retail price on, on just the head unit was $360. 
He said, they've got them here in the United States. They've decided they're not going to market them in the United States. If you'll drive over to Richardson, Texas, to this warehouse and bring $59, you can buy one of the top stereos available. And I remember driving over there, and I looked at all the money I had left after I had that, <laughs> the stereo, my car was all white and had tires. And I thought, God is trying to tell a 17-year-old kid something. God is trying to tell a 17-year-old kid, you can't outgive God. I was 17. I'm not 17 anymore. And I've discovered that's really true. You say, Mark, do you think God actually cares about my finances? He cares about the number of hairs on your head. Does he care about your finances? Let me read a verse to you. Romans 8, verse 32. Since... He did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all. Won't he also give us everything else? That's God's plan. And for those who will stand for a minute, all those seven things are true. Thanks for being here today. God bless. We'll see you next weekend. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.